Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am Assistant Professor of Religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife and a New Books Network host in Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very fortunate to have Professor Douglas Ober from Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, to talk with us about his new book, Dust on the Throne, The Search for Buddhism in Modern India. This book is co-published by Navayana Publishing in India, who um, did most of the editing work and Stanford University Press in the U.S., Here's my um, introduction question. So welcome, Douglas. Thank you for writing this amazing book. It's long, but definitely a change per a turner, at least for me. Uh, it's full of surprising anecdotes, fresh insights. While reading it, I cannot count the times so that I say to myself, oh no, how come I didn't know this? How come I believe in this myth? Totally, those doesn't make sense now that you pointed it out in this book. It's kind of incredible that I've believed in such lies for so long. Um, let me see what else I might have, um, you know, totally gone wrong just because others, um, my ancestors, other scholars said so. Right. So that's what keeps me on going, reading, engrossed in the whole process. I hope the listeners in this interview will find similar moments um, during the conversation. And maybe this will encourage more people to pick up this awesome book and start reading it. So, Douglas, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself? What leads you to start asking those thought-provoking questions like, did Buddhism really disappear or die in India? Uh, did Islamic invasion of India really ended Buddhism as we know it today? And, you know, how do you decide to work on the history of Buddhism in modern India? How did you manage to trace and organize the sources in so many languages? Let me just count them. Bengali, Burmese, French, Japanese, Malayalam, Marathi, Nepali, Pali, Persian, Russian, Sanskrit, Tamil, Telugu, Tibetan, and Urdu. That's 15, not counting English. So, Well, first, Jessica, thank you you know, so much for having me on the NBN and for that really, you know, wonderful introduction and your very kind words about the book. I I think that it's such a relief to know that after you spent, you know, about a decade of your life working on something that someone actually reads it and that they not just read it, but they, you know, find it rewarding and enjoyable. So um, really, thank you. Um, It's, it's, it's a, so refreshing for me just to, to hear all this. Um, as for me, I don't, I don't think my story is particularly extraordinary. I was born and raised outside of Chicago, and I grew up during a moment in kind of American history when the Dalai Lama and Buddhism permeated a lot of popular culture. Um, by the time I was in university, you know, I was essentially trying to take every course possible in Asian history um, due to what was available at my university that was mostly in Chinese and Japanese history. And then I was fortunate enough to spend some time studying in India, Nepal, and then the Tibet Autonomous Region of China um, during my junior year of college or my third year of college. 
And after I graduated, I taught English overseas for some time. And this eventually led me to Bhutan, where I wound up teaching and studying in the Shedra, which is a kind of Buddhist monastic college for the study of Buddhist philosophy. And, you know, in retrospect, I think it was really the experience of living in this somewhat remote monastery in Western Bhutan that led me to really recognize Buddhist traditions and all their complexity with their connections to politics and economics, the kind of deeper histories that had shaped, you know, their existence and why things were the way they were. Um, I continued to work in India and Bhutan uh, in the kind of years thereafter, but I eventually returned to the U.S. um, to go to graduate school, and I did an M.A. in comparative religion at the University of Washington in Seattle. And that was really when I kind of broadened a lot of my language training um, and, you know, engaged in really much more kind of critical, sustained uh, studies, mostly in Hindi, Urdu, and Tibetan. And then after taking some time off once again to spend more time in India, I did my PhD in Asian studies at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And that was where I wrote a dissertation that later transformed into this book. Um, of course, there continued to be lots of work, you know, in travel and language study in Asia throughout this kind of whole 15 year long period. Um, for instance, for many years, I worked for two different travel companies leading tours in India, Sri Lanka, and China and Tibet. And also did a lot of traveling in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Myanmar or Burma. And, you know, I I have to say that, you know, while nothing could ever replace the many months I just spent sitting in archives in India doing this kind of very tedious sort of work, um, in some ways, I still feel that much of my knowledge and understanding of these broader histories is due to this time I spent traveling um, kind of on the ground. That that really helped develop an appreciation for what things looked like on the ground as opposed opposed to just a kind of bookish perspective. Um, And it also led me to read widely and really try to find significance in details um, elsewhere in Asia that would have otherwise seemed insignificant. So later on, that helped me kind of track down sources and think about how I was going to try to craft this whole narrative together. And of course, you know, throughout this whole period, I'd, I had really extraordinary and supportive teachers and colleagues in India, in, in the U.S. and Canada. And none of this book would have been possible without any of them, you know, it's one. It's one reason why the acknowledgments in the book is really so lengthy. There were there are many people I had to acknowledge, you know, my debts to. Now, as for this question of whether Buddhism really disappeared from India, you know, I think like most people, I was just socialized into just accepting that as a fact. And even in graduate school, I, I feel that that still remains the central paradigm, where we've all been fed this narrative that. Buddhism disappeared from India sometime between the 12th to 14th centuries. Some people put it, you know, much earlier. Some kind of minority of scholars will place it longer. And then the narrative follows that it was kind of long forgotten until British colonial scholars rediscovered it in the early 1800s. And, you know, I I even very vividly recall a moment in graduate school where I told uh, another faculty member that I was writing, you know, my dissertation on the history of Buddhism in modern India, and they really scoffed at me and said, you know, that doesn't exist. You're wasting your time. There's nothing to write about here. Um, As far as the sources go, the book draws on source material from numerous languages. Um, A lot of it's in translation. There's also some visual sources, wall paintings in temples, iconography, and so on. Uh, You've mentioned 15 languages. I've never actually counted them. So thanks for, you know, enumerating all of that. Um, Most of the source material that I read in its original unedited and untranslated form was in Hindi, English, in some cases Tibetan, as well as Sanskrit and Pali, although my knowledge of kind of Sanskrit and Pali is really quite dodgy. It's, it's more formulaic. 
Um, but it was enough to kind of, you know, get me moving at least. In other cases, um, particularly in the case of the uh, Bengali language material, I really just learned the script and the kind of the bare grammatical necessities and some key vocabularies so that I could skim materials um, that looking kind of through historical newspapers and journals for certain subjects and keywords that I was interested in. And then if I found something that seemed significant, I would seek assistance from colleagues, friends, librarians, and so on, right? And again, this is why the acknowledgments is so long. And even in the book, you'll often find footnotes where, you know, someone translated um, like a short essay for me or, you know, a little blurb from a newspaper article. Now, once I made the decision to write a kind of subcontinental history of Buddhism rather than just focusing on one region or one historical personality, I recognized that I would have to grapple with this problem, the kind of very multilingual landscape landscape of the subcontinent. Now, fortunately for me, you know, India's intellectual and cultural history is to a large degree a product of translation and collaboration between different linguistic communities. So what this means is that there's a great deal of textual material in India that has been translated into other languages. And while we can all acknowledge that much is lost in translation, this does allow someone like me with knowledge of just three or four languages to engage in a wider field. But there are gaps, right? And as I acknowledge in the book, um, for instance, there's a large body of Tamil language secondary scholarship that I wasn't able to engage. Um, I don't know Tamil. Um, and I really only know that material through conversations with colleagues and friends who are really conversant in that literature. Wow. Thank you so much for such an informative um, conversation here. So I picked up several things, both archives and personal experience of traveling on the ground, talking with people are important. And this book is outcome of like a collective project, even though you are the leader of the research project, but like we all do research collaboratively in one way or another. But thank you so much. Um, before we move on to the content, um, I'd like to ask you about the cover of your book um, published by the Navayana um, pu Publishing. Um, the cover art is quite striking to me. So who is the artist? What does this piece of art say? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful cover. And I, you know, I constantly get compliments for it. It really just captures the eye. Um, it was designed by a graphic designer and artist that's based in India named Akila Seishasai. Um, the characters on it itself, um, there's kind of four main characters on it, you know, in kind of these four different corners. And they read Dhammalippi. Um, so Dhammalippi is the oldest known script of the Indian subcontinent. And it's the one in which the Emperor Ashoka's edicts are written. Um, this is the script upon which it's believed that most other scripts in South and Southeast Asia are derived. Now, in most academic circles today, the script is known as Brahmi. But at the time it was composed, some 2,000 plus years ago, it was, you know, ex explicitly labeled as Dhammalippi, the writing of Dhamma or the inscriptions of Dhamma. And the ability to read the script was apparently lost um, in India in subsequent centuries. We're not really sure when exactly its meanings was lost. Um, but by the time the East India Company began colonizing India, it was completely unknown. And it was then only deciphered in 1837 um, by a really brilliant essayist named James Princep. And I think I believe it was in the 1980s, if, if, if I remember correctly, that it was then given this title Brahmi um, as the name of the script. And the connotation of that name really connects it to the Brahmanical or Hindu deity Brahma and also to Brahmins. Um, but in some parts of India today, 
there's a kind of movement to reestablish its connections to Buddhism. Um, and so my book itself, you know, which is really an attempt to try to put Buddhism back into the subcontinent's history, back into South Asian history, it, it seemed appropriate to put this on the cover. Although, you know, I have to confess, I was not involved in the decision to, you know, design that cover. And it really came about from the insights of the Nabayana editorial team. Wow, thank you so much. This is fascinating. I never know Rami is actually, they call, it's called Dharma Lipi. The yeah. language of Dharma is so beautiful. That makes me feel like Ashoka's inscriptions is so much more, uh, was so much more like further work. Um, so thanks for sharing. Now let's go to the content of your book. It has seven main chapters, each with its own coherence theme, arranged more or less chronologically, and you also have an introduction and conclusion. I'd like to start our interview with your intro, um, introduction. It's called A Dependent Arising, very Buddhist reference. Here you made some quite an astonishing claims. Two things that stand out to me is that on page 22, you, it, it talks about Buddhism's disappearance from South Asian subcontinent. And then you said, here I just quote, it is a little more than a useful fiction deployed to wash over a more complicated historical terrain involving periodic Buddhist resurgences and trans-regional pilgrimage networks. You know, never mind that there are at least one million Bengali-speaking living Buddhists in Chittagong and more like in New War. So Buddhism, the received wisdom is that is it disappeared in India. And uh, number two is that the revival, so-called revival of Buddhism in modern India began in the mid-19th century. Um, <clears throat> the true revival began actually in the mid-19th century, around 1850s. That is almost a century earlier than the most well-known event of Dr. Ambedekar's Dalit movement and the mass conversion to Buddhism in 1956. So the so-called recovery of the history of Buddhism was very much made by Indians themselves. So please tell us, tell our listeners more about these two important for me, I think for everyone is groundbreaking interventions of your book, and how they are related to your overall theoretical approach to study these, you call it, um, unarchived histories. Yes, you know, I think most of us have been, again, fed this familiar narrative that Buddhism disappears from India around the 12th century or so. And I, I call it a useful fiction. I think elsewhere I've described it as a kind of modern myth. Um, the reasons why it persists, despite really so much evidence to the contrary, is complex. But I think the simplest way to unravel it is by really looking at three different sets of issues that are all interrelated, of course. Um, first, there's just the evidence. Um, there's just so much evidence in the form of inscriptions, literature, travelogues, pilgrims' accounts, royal chronicles, art and architecture, and so on that, that contradict this argument in a kind of chronological sense. Um, I discuss a lot of this in the book, but certainly not all of it. Due to, due to space, a lot of it was just omitted. But I'll just mention two kind of examples to give everyone who's listening a, you know, a sense of this, right? So in the north of India, you have documentary evidence in the form of Sanskrit manuscripts from mid 15th century rural Bihar. So not far from Bodh Gaya, where scribes are copying Buddhist texts. Um, I forget uh, the nature of all these, but one of them is certainly the Kalachakra Tantra and where they're explicitly stating you know, that they have faith in Manjushri, the, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. That's in the north, right? So if we'd move even farther south, here you have evidence of bronze images of the Buddha, of Avalokiteshvara, of Maitreya, Tara, and other Buddhist deities 
being produced in Nagapatanam. This is a kind of coastal port town in southern India. And this is being produced well into the 1600s. Now, some art historians even date these images to the year 1700. Um, but a more conservative estimate puts them firmly in the 1600s. I don't think anyone would really contest that. Of course, you know, dating images can often be speculative. Um, but, you know, we also have inscriptions from just 40 miles west of there, um, one dated to the year 1580, that explicitly mentions a Buddhist vihara being constructed, right? So here's socially distinctive communities, you know, seen as Buddhist in the local context into the 1580s. Um, elsewhere, you have literary evidence of persecutions of Buddhists in the 1530s in places like Odisha. Um, this is in eastern India, not far from modern-day Kolkata. Um, so in, in, in effect, what we see here is just a huge array of evidence from across the subcontinent that Buddhists were still active um, well after the 1300s, where we're talking about another 250 years at least. Um, they've, they've lost a lot of their support. Um, they're certainly a minority, but, you know, they're not, they've not disappeared. And by saying that they've disappeared, they're kind of being erased from, from our history. Now, the, the second major problem with this disappearance theory is really more conceptual. It's really a product of the way that nationalist histories have so shaped our understanding of the past. And the heart of this issue is really about how we define India. Right? As, a, as a modern day nation state that's just some 75 you know, plus years old, India has clear boundaries. Well, I guess we should say somewhat clear boundaries, obviously deeply contested with China and Pakistan. Um, but that's a kind of modern territorial conception, right? So the bigger question here is really where does India begin and where does it end? You know, when does India as a composite whole or as an idea even come into being? What, what does India even mean? It's a really fuzzy and ambiguous space and we can define it politically or culturally um, or religiously in any number of ways. And we often find conflation of the modern political nation, like the Republic of India, with the India of the past. But if we think in terms of, you know, the modern geographer's terminology of South Asia, meaning really the subcontinent, or even the cultural historian's idea of India, then it's obvious that both, you know, Newar and even Sinhalese Buddhist traditions in modern day Sri Lanka should really be seen as kind of uninterrupted continuations of this Indian Buddhism or South Asian or Indic Buddhism, whatever, however you want to phrase it. You know, if you replace India with South Asia, you know, in, including places like Bangladesh and Pakistan and Nepal, um, then it's obvious that Buddhism never disappeared, right? For instance, in the Kathmandu Valley, you have a thriving Buddhist culture among Newars who continue to utilize Sanskrit manuscripts and maintain connections with Buddhist sites um, up to the modern era. You know, these are Buddhist sites in India and in what today is modern day India. Um, similarly in Chittagong, which is a kind of coastal and hilly region, in what today is the People's Republic of Bangladesh, Buddhist practices continue unabated, right? Despite periods of kind of periodic decline and transformation. And none of this even includes Buddhist communities in the high Himalaya, right? In places like Ladakh and Kinor, Spiti or Sikkim or Bhutan or even northeastern India, right? Collectively, if we view these, we see that this really forms a significant Buddhist presence. It's kind of a, a frontier on the outskirts of the subcontinent. And I think that, in fact, tells us something really important, right? It tells us that, you know, in the 1400s and 1500s, Buddhists were really pushed to the borders. Um, and that says something about the conditions in India, that, you know, the conditions were really no longer suitable for Buddhist activity but ultimately, all this is ignored. And instead, what we see is that the history of the re region continues to be written from the perspective 
of the modern day nation. And these kind of national histories really have no room for developments that transpire outside these national borders. Um, the, the last kind of interpretive issue here is also this kind of, you know, now age old question that we've all been grappling with is, you know, what do we mean when we say Buddhist or even Buddhism? Does Buddhism exist, right? Is this a modern day concept? And I don't really get in to those issues and I still remain somewhat, somewhat ambivalent on aspects of it. But in the context of thinking about the decline of Buddhism in India or in the subcontinent, you know, much of the evidence for Buddhist activity in the kind of post 15th century period involves wandering tantrikas and yogis, you know, kind of Vajrayana masters, um, famous figures like the 17th century um, Siddha Buddhagupta Natha, right, who's known to us through this very colorful bi biography in Tibetan. And yet, you know, figures like Buddhagupta Natha and, and other, you know, individuals like him are often ignored by modern historians because they don't kind of mesh well with this romanticized image of a so-called true Buddhist or authentic Buddhist, you know, because they're meat eating, they're using magic, right? So they're, they don't seem Buddhist to some of us today. So, you know, they couldn't, we shouldn't include them in our histories, but as historians, that doesn't mean that they weren't seen as Buddhist then. And we have to take that into consideration. They were seen as Buddhist and they were seen as people who carried the tradition of Dhamma with them. And I think that's a really um, important element that's kind of ignored. And, you know, all of this feeds into this practice, which I put under the rubric of an ar unarchived history. And that expression, unarchived history, it comes from the historian Guy Nandra Pandi in his book, A History of Race and Prejudice. Um, so what Pandi tells us is that an unarchived history is not a history that does not have an archive. Instead, it's a history that has been unarchived. It's been marginalized, ignored, suppressed, kind of pushed out of the central narratives because it's seen as kind of too trivial or insignificant or incidental to the central story being told. Now, I use the term slightly differently than the way that Pundi deploys it, but I really think it explains our, modern, our kind of modern blind spot with regard to Buddhism in India, right? There's this massive archive of evidence, most of it known to scholars, but it continues to be ignored or unarchived because it doesn't fit the theories that we've been you know, socialized into believing. So what I really try to do in the book as a whole is to show that, you know, many of the things that are said to be insignificant are actually deeply significant. And when we read them collectively, they form this really clear pattern and narrative. And I try to kind of return them to the archive, so to speak, or at least make them more visible again. Thank you so much, Douglas. This is very enlightening. <laughs> While you are talking, I just remembered, oh, I know for sure I have like 18th, 19th um, century kind of uh, Chinese sources say that they went to India, but when they say they went to India, they mean they go to Sri Lanka. <laughs> so like India really mean different things, but like they're just like constant streams of uh, pilgrimage <clears throat> throughout. So now let's move on to chapter one. And I'm definitely going to use archive history and think about my own writing. So chapter one now is the agony of memory. That book ended with an episode happened in 1835. That's when a British diplomat named uh, Lancelot Wilkinson and his uh, Sanskrit tutor, Pandit Subhaji Babu, they started translating an old Buddhist Sanskrit manuscript called Vajra Suchi, the Diamond Cutter, that contains extensive anti-castes arguments for which Subhaji just like wrote an extensive 50-page rebuttal three times the length of Vajra Suchi text itself 
that's happened in 1839, published version of the translation. So, but in between the chapter, right, you take readers traveling through time to understand the millennium long mutual animosity between uh, Vedic Brahmanism and Buddhism, especially the real politic implications of pro-caste, anti-caste worldviews. And when you say animosity, you really mean animosity. I never really noticed until like I read your book. So you recover for the readers ample metaphors of gruesome violence, destruction in their like insults to each other. To give an example, on page 49, you cited a 7th century child prodigy called Shambhadar, who in his hymn to Shiva, right, denounced the Buddhist, here I just quote, I didn't say this, wicked scoundrels, worthless, vili or wily rogues, fat, degenerate men. So that's just him. But there's also a later 12th century epic that wrote uh, about um it says that by just reciting a single mantra to Shiva, a Sambada could sever a monk's head. And there were just like so many very juicy examples in this chapter. I highly, you know, highly entertaining, highly recommend readers. Just like if you only have time to read one chapter, check out this chapter. And of course, the Suwaji, the 19th century pandit, would rec- uh, remember very well the Buddhist critique against the uh, revealed Vedic knowledge and its hierarchical social order based on caste. Here you wrote that to have this sort of Buddhist critique um, which is called spread by a colonial government whose sympathies for the Buddha were increasingly public was simply too much to bear. That's your comments. Oh gosh, I didn't put the page number, but it's there. So Douglas, please tell us more about um, what's the significance about um, recovering this suppressed memory of past animosity and how does it relate to your dismantling of the colonial myths or the useful fiction that Buddhism disappeared in India and that the colonial masters rescued Buddhism from oblivion, from the dustbin of history? Yeah, and this is a great question, and and in many ways, this is really pivotal to understanding the the place of Buddhism in colonial India. You know, especially in this kind of earlier period. You know, essentially, what I attempt to do in this chapter is just answer a seemingly very simple question, but that no one had really seemed to ask that I'm aware of, which is, you know, what did South Asians in the subcontinent actually think or even know of Buddhist traditions in the kind of 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries? And obviously the answer to this would vary immensely due to someone's background, their profession, their education, and also where they were located um, was really of really critical importance. So language and re- region often define a lot of the subcontinent's history. Um, so someone nearby the Kathmandu Valley where Newar Buddhist practices were very much a central part of everyday public life, they would have certainly had at the very least a more kind of ethnographic knowledge of Buddhism, right? If, assuming they didn't come from a Buddhist family. Um, they, they're some, they're seeing the things. They're visible. They're being told stories. Um, but much of what I focus on are kind of larger regional histories and myths that were passed down either orally or copied by hand, and then known among kind of regional populaces. And then I also try to focus on some kind of famed stories that reached a, a wider, almost pan-Indian audience, and kind of the various redactions of these texts. Um, as you stated, you know, when you read these stories with Buddhists and the Buddha in mind a very clear and somewhat disturbing pattern, um, at least in my view, emerges, right? That the Buddha had come to be demonized and stigmatized along with Buddhists, right? They were seen by Brahmins, at least, and most of this literature is Brahmanical literature. They were seen as kind of deviants and misfits whose teachings led to social decay that led to chaos. Um, They were really seen as a kind of people whose influence needed to be checked and suppressed. 
um, if you wanted to keep Dharma in order. That is kind of a, a Hindu Dharmic uh, vision of this. And once Buddhists were successfully pushed to the margins of the sub- subcontinent, you know, to the Himalayas, to Chittagong, to other frontier regions, this you know, kind of negative attitude, antagonistic attitude, appears to become really the dominant lens through which Brahmanical societies understood the Buddhist past, right? Buddhist manuscripts were lost or destroyed. Buddhist institutions collapsed. The Sangha, as we might conventionally know it, had largely come to an end. So without these pillars in place, Buddhists, we might say, did not really have the opportunity to represent themselves, right? And a new understanding of Buddhism emerged in in their absence. And it was one that was not really favorable to Buddhists, you know, and you know, again, that's probably being too diplomatic. Um, there was a lot of terrible violence, right? Intellectual violence and, you know, and arguably physical violence. The degrees to which it involves, you know, really physical violence, you know, murder, um, physical persecutions remain somewhat debated in the context of South Asian history. Um, but the intellectual violence and social stigma is of no doubt, right? There's really so much evidence for this. And in the book, I, I quote this really eminent scholar of Telugu literature, V. Narayan Rao, who says that by the 19th century, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the term Buddhist had basically become the term that Brahmin fathers hurled at their sons when they deviated from good practices, right? So your son or daughter is misbehaving. What do you say to them? Stop acting like a damn Buddhist, right? It's, it's a kind of term of derision. And there's a lot of linguistic evidence for this, you know, outside of even just Telugu environments, um, in Hindi language environments, Malalam. So, you know, there's a very prominent Hindi writer and scholar, Rahula Sankritayayan, who writes in his memoir that even in the late 1880s, as a child, he was told that the famed Buddhist images at Ajanta uh, were images of demons carved in stone, right? So this kind of really explains the popular sentiment somewhat well. And the reason why this is so important is because it, it serves as the basis of this kind of common societal attitude towards Buddhism in India at this time, right? It's the foundation of what later changes. And also to some degree, what, what doesn't change, you know, this kind of ambivalence towards Buddhism in India remains to this very day. And now, as far as the other part of your question, you know, what I argue is that even while Buddhist identities really evaporate in India outside with exception of the kind of frontiers of the subcontinent, this memory of Buddhism kept it alive, right? It's it's an antagonistic memory, but it's a memory that, you know, um, still continues to inform the private and public imagination. And it's, and it's visible in many sources. So I focus a lot of time on kind of prominent hagiographies of various Hindu teachers in the 1700s, um, as well as in some temple art that continued to depict Buddhists. And it's clear Buddhists are, are, are part of this, you know, Brahmanical imagination as this kind of antagonistic other that needs to be pushed away, um, this kind of foil to, to help define what is and or is not a kind of so-called good, you know, Hindu or a good Brahmin. Um, now, parallel with all of this, you have all these continued pilgrimages and travels of, travels of Buddhists in India, um, all the way up to the colonial period. And when I say India in this context, I'm really focusing on kind of North Indian Buddhist sites, you know, places like Bodh Gaya and Sarnath and Nalanda that had really fallen into complete decay. But you continue to have pilgrims from, you know, Newar communities, from Tibetan communities, from, from Garwalis, Chittagonians, Rakhine or Arkanese, which are today in like in southwestern Burma, continuing to travel to these sites 
either for trade or for religious purposes, um, perhaps both. You know, it's not always clear, but the, the evidence is there. And by the early 1800s, when the British really start digging around, you know, literally into the ground they're digging, they begin recovering evidence of this Buddhist past, right? Of, of Buddhist temples buried under centuries of accumulated topsoil or converted into Hindu sites or as, into Islamic monuments. And then also a Buddhist literature that's elsewhere in Asia that describes India's Buddhist past. And this really unsettles some Brahmins and unsettles some Hindu patrons, you know, especially when the British begin to circulate some of this Buddhist literature that is also polemical and critical of Brahmanical lifestyles, particularly of issues of caste. And it's perceived by, you know, Brahmins as a kind of a, an attack on an esteemed practice and tradition, rightfully so, right? This was something that they regarded as valuable to their society, to their lifestyle. And, you know, many British Orientalists then come to romanticize this Buddha and he becomes something like a foil to all things Hindu. So it's it really sets up this narrative of kind of, you know, a conflict emerging to some degree. Um, but, you know, I don't see this purely as a kind of colonial invention. I see it as something that was more deeply embedded in a longer history that predated the colonial period. Yeah. Thank you so much, Douglas. This is so informative. Just like, um, just talk about colonial definitely flattened the, the whole narrative, the whole complexity. But you've managed to discover so many different di um, dimensions of power differentials. Um, so highly recommend this chapter. But chapter two, Dispelling the Darkness, start to tell us the remarkable reversal of this narrative. But Dispelling Darkness narrates the role of Indian English educated elites in the revival of Buddhism. So these people, they were the power holders. They worked in government education departments, um, archaeological survey of India, the Census Commission, and many sorts of research societies. And through their work, right, they powered popular Buddhist campaigns and activities and produced a robust discourse about Buddhism decades before the founding of the renowned Mahabodhi Society, which was um, established by the Sri Lankan Theosophist Buddhist Anagarika Dhammapala that was in 1891. So for example, um, earlier than that, right, in the 1880s, Saraj Chandra Das, a Bengali explorer slash scholar, who grew up in Chittagong but managed to learn Tibetan and went to Tibet as a linguist, an exographer, uh, ethnographer. And he, of course, was fluent in English and he popularized this rhetoric that Tibetan Buddhism was the most faithful replication of late Indian Buddhism. I honestly remember that narrative. I learned it from some textbooks. Uh, and there's another chief threat is the Indian upper echelon's response to Sir Edmund uh, Arnold's hugely influential poetic biography of the Buddha called The Light of Asia, published in 1879, which was a, a hit in the West, right? But it was also like popular in India and made into plays, films, and being staged. And the common thread here seems to be that many of these elites saw the Buddha as a social reformer, an anti-caste hero. And, you know, the Buddha was promoting social and gender equality. So please tell us more about this early elite imagination or romanticization of Buddhism. <clears throat> yeah, so after the 1850s, the colonial government begins to invest in a wide array of public education programs. So they begin building vernacular and technical schools, provincial universities in the major cities. <clears throat> and th this was a shift away from the earlier periods where the East India Company had taken very little 
interest in education schemes, most of it being left to missionaries, Christian missionaries, or to private individuals. And in these new government schools, curriculums were often standardized. So they'd include topics like literature, philosophy, history, geography, and mathematics. Buddhism, of course, was never a discrete subject. It wasn't like you could take Buddhism 101, um, not until at least the turn of the century in some kind of elite institutions. But it nonetheless really came to form a significant part of some of these class curriculums. This is really due in part to a tendency to understand religion as the bedrock of Indian life, right? This kind of Orientalist fantasy, um, but also due to this very exciting series of archaeological discoveries occurring in the subcontinent, right? Many of which concern Buddhist antiquities, right? So the excavations of uh, Buddhist monasteries and cave sites, the deciphering of ancient scripts like Damalipi, right? Which is, I think, deciphered, if I recall, in, in the 1840s, like 1846 or 47, or the discovery of Ashoka and his pillars. Um, you know, these material objects really offer radically new perspectives into the history of the subcontinent, right? We might even say they completely upended the conventional view of India's past as understood by kind of Brahmanical Hindu scriptures. And again, you know, most of the Brahmanical pictures painted a less flattering picture of, of Buddhists, as we've just discussed. Ashoka's edicts present a very different picture, right? That Buddhism possesses a kind of admirable system of ethics, of morality. And this meshes well with many kind of modern liberal views. It's, it's also important to recognize that the discovery or kind of recovery of these materials was not just a top-down affair. Um, you know, a fairly wide swath of society engaged in these kind of archaeological projects, public works projects. So you had Indian laborers, photographers, draftsmen working at these sites in the thousands, right? And a picture of one of these sites at Sanchi in the 1880s appears in the book, and it's on the cover of the Stanford edition. Um, so this new perspective is being shared with really diverse social classes and castes. Now, it's, it is really difficult to determine how subaltern laboring castes would have reacted to these ventures. You know, the, the sources just aren't there, or I wasn't able to locate them. They probably are there, but I just haven't figured out a means to, to think about it. Um, it is easier, however, to discern how Indian intellectuals engaged in these projects. So, you know, I, I try to track this kind of wider transformation and then focus on a few key figures like Rajendralal Mitra, who's the first Indian president of the Asiatic Society, but also lesser known figures like Rajashiva Prasad, who's this kind of Jaina intellectual who works in the education department of the Northwestern provinces. Um, you know, in, in the kind of text, this government textbook that Shiva Prasad writes, he writes this in Hindi, it's called Itihas Tamari Nashak. It's first published in 1864, and it's then later translated into Urdu and English. Um, a, a rough translation of this is History as the Dispeller of Darkness, hence the, the title of the chapter. And this is a really broad history of India, but because it's used in government schools, it, it's printed in mass, right? So by the 1880s, you have about 20,000 copies are being printed annually just within this one province. Um, in the book, you know, Shiva Prasad describes the Buddha as an anti-caste, anti-Brahmin teacher, right? And at one point in the book, he has this really, you know, visceral, really amazing passage where he compares the Buddha's impact on Indian society to Abraham Lincoln's freeing of the slaves and the Russian czar's abolition of serfdom, right? And this is occurring just within a few years of these events, you know, transpiring in Russia and the United States, right? But the premise here is that the Buddha liberated the so-called lower and untouchable castes from oppression, right? So you have books like this being widely read by, you know, 
school children and then adults across the subcontinent up through the 1890s. So this really informs a kind of impression of, you know, what the Buddhist legacy was. You know, and fast forward a few decades and you have figures like this Bengali explorer and scholar Sarachandra Das, right? So Das is born in Chittagong in 1849 to a Hindu family. He, he travels to Calcutta to study engineering at Calcutta University, but he falls ill with malaria um, he doesn't seem to do well in the plains, and he's sent to Darjeeling. And the Darjeeling is a hill station that borders Tibet, and it's home to a large Tibetan Buddhist population. He begins working at this kind of government boarding school for Bhutias, kind of Himalayan Buddhists, and he begins studying Tibetan. But this school is also training Tibetans and Bhutias as spies to to visit Tibet and to map the region as part of this great game, you know, exercise. You know, the British are anxious. Of, about Russian aggression. They have a desire to develop an overland trading route to China. And so Das also becomes one of these spies. And, you know, some of these spies are coming all the way from Mongolia, where they're receiving this kind of training at this, you know, colonial institution. Das is able to visit Tibet in 1879, I, I believe, um, again, 1881. Um, he even meets the Panchen Lama. So this is a kind of very high level, you know, expedition. And until late in life, he's paid as an intelligence officer. But this is all the while producing really outstanding scholarship on Tibetan Buddhism, right? He's, he's a fantastic, fantastic scholar of Tibetan language and of Sanskrit. Um, you know, but at the same time, Das is not really just a puppet, right? He gets into rifts with Anagarika Dhammapala because he says the Buddha was not an anti-caste figure. He says that Buddhism is misogynistic, right? So Dhammapala doesn't like this. Um, and he also moves away from this, you know, Pali and sans, kind of Sanskritic centric view of Buddhism, right, where he begins to argue that Tibetan interpretations are the most accurate. You know, in, in essence, by the early 20th century, you have figures like Das and Mitra um, and institutions like Calcutta University all over India. And they're popularizing Buddhism through their writings and their lectures. Um, and this leads to a kind of awakening, right? We might even call it a kind of renaissance where it's also attracting people from elsewhere in Asia and Europe to India for academic studies, right? So and Richard Jaffe has just written this fantastic book about how Japanese intellectuals traveled to India because they saw it as a kind of Oxford of the East, right? Somewhere where you could learn Orientalist methodologies, study with, you know, esteemed teachers and also gain access to, you know, primary source material. Thank you so much. This is just such a rich chapter. So many different informations. And then to know that Chandra Das was actually an intelligent officer being paid so, but still produced scholarship. Hmm. Yeah, it just means that, you know, where your money comes from doesn't actually define your scholarship. Not necessarily. We can be, have some kind of a, um, freedom to develop our scholarly voice. But chapter three. Banyan Tree, Banyan Tree Buddhism tells a different kind of story. It takes us to the grassroots links of modern Indian Buddhism in the late 19th century. It talks about figures like Mahavish, who was a former wrestler and turned bhikkhu. They are important for many reasons. One is that, um, <clears throat> you know, at least, for example, Mahavish, his disciple, Wu Chandramani was the ritual officiant during Ambedkar's public entry into Buddhism. But more important, importantly, as you mentioned on page 108 to 109, 
Indian converts like Mahavish and Wu Chandramani first came into contact with Buddhism through um, exposures to a living Buddhist cultures instead of textbooks and stories. And, you know, so um, they were neglected in current scholarship also because we as a field inherited a um, orientalist legacy that trained our focus on the what you call global trotting cosmopolitans um, like Anagarika Dhammapala. Oh, we you know focus on text, we focus on people who spoke fluent English. So consequently, right, we overlook systematically those grassroots organizations, those uh, intra-Asian kind of flows about Buddhist ideas and peoples and texts and other paraphernalias, and then, you know, we ignore their roles in the making of modern Indian Buddhism. So the metaphor of Banyan tree is very, very apt, right? It talks about the multiple branches without clear marking over these main roots, what is this, you know, side branches, it's just like one big tree, that's everything in it, but also interlinked. So as you laid out for, for the readers, Theosophic societies actually played quite important roles. But in contrast to the, you know, theosophical societies, um, especially people like Anagarika Dhammapala's Anglo-centric Buddhism that's catering to the global urban elites, other figures like the Bengali Venerable uh, Kripa Saran and the Bengal Buddhist Association, and there's also uh, Tamil leaders like Yoti Tas, uh, Lakshmi Narasu and their Sakya Buddhist society, not to mention poor white working class converts like the Irish Buddhist, the radical Wu Damaloka, and other cast-offs of the empire, right? These grassroots organizations, one day kind of uh, uh, promote Buddhism, right? They tend to focus on the local needs of the so-called low-born outcast Dalit. And they also formed a different kind of Buddhism, right? It's anti-colonial. Um, Buddhist politics in Asia. So please tell us, tell our listeners more about these overlooked but fascinating, absolutely fascinating figures and their actions so they can see the other face of Buddhism that's silenced by the Wiener's story. Yeah, yes, that's that's absolutely right, right? So again, the, the central focus of so many studies of Buddhism in colonial India have been on the Mahabodhi Society and really on Dharmapala's efforts to Establish control over the Mahabodhi temple complex in Bodhagaya. Now, none of this means that Dharmapala or the Mahabodhi society were unimportant, right? Their significance should not be understated, but our but our focus on them has really overshadowed these other movements who who were whose influence was just as important. And in many of these cases, these other movements involved organizations and individuals that Dharmapala often worked with, but the relationships were rarely smooth. There were kind of class, caste, ideological tensions that prevented them, you know, from really collaborating more fruitfully. Um, And consequently, the Mahabodhi society tends to downplay their role. And later historians have understood most things, uh, you know, modern Buddhist in India from this Mahabodhi society perspective. So they become lost from view, or again, we might say kind of unarchived to to use that expression again. There's too many movements to discuss um, so I'll just briefly, you know, touch on two of these, right? So the first, which you mentioned, is the Bengal Buddhist Association. This is founded by the Chittagonian monk uh, Kripasharan in 1892. So this is just a f- um, about a year or so after Dhammapala moves the Mahabodhi Society to Calcutta, and the headquarters that is. And Kripasharan and Dhammapala know each other quite well, um, but again, there are kind of class and social differences that I think probably kept them from forming a stronger bond. So Kripasharan was not fluent in English. 
He came from a rural monastic community in Chittagon. He was not a globe-trotting cosmopolitan. I don't believe, as far as I'm aware, I don't believe he ever traveled outside of South Asia. Um, he was not a product of a colonial education system, but instead he was raised in a monastic environment, um, largely conditioned by kind of Burmese and Arakanese masters who really placed great stress on Pali language scriptures. Um, Dhammapala, in his own diaries, describes Kripashara and other monks from the Bengal Buddhist Association as low-born bhikkhus. And I think that statement sums up his feelings for them. Um, but despite these kind of different class origins, Kripasaran was an incredible organizer. And he impressed people from, you know, all different classes with his kind of discipline, with his asceticism, with his enthusiasm. He befriends European colonial officials that are in very high places, like Sir Harcourt Butler, who's the governor of the United Provinces, one of the largest provinces in India, um, is one of Kripasaran's kind of main supporters. Um, as well as Sir Ashutosh Mukherjee, who's the vice chancellor of Calcutta University. He's also a high court magistrate. And with their support among kind of, you know, a wide array of other figures, Kripasaran goes on to build multiple temples and establish branches across the subcontinent, you know, most of which catered to Bengali-speaking Buddhist Barwa populaces from Chittagong. Um, these were communities that had been really scattered across the subcontinent. Um, and he builds these temples to really support you know, his uh, other Barwa, eth eth ethnically Barwa communities. In fact, you know, in, in the early years of the Mahabodhi Society, many of their events were actually held at the Bengal Buddhist Association in Calcutta. And, you know, I believe it's even as early as like 1905, Kripasharan's temple in Calcutta is visited by the Panchen Lama. A few years after that, the 13th Dalai Lama visits Kripasharan's temple. Um, as well as many other kind of elite Indian scholars and really important kind of British colonial officials, right? To put this all in historical context, the Mahabodhi Society is, does not even build its first temple in India until some 15 years later, right? And yet we know very little about the, the Bengal Buddhist Association, even though it's, it's so immensely influential. Um, and it's still, it's very active today. It's, it's even appeared in the Lonely Planet magazine for, or a Lonely Planet book for India. So it's, making, you know, making waves when, you know, backpackers who travel around India on low budgets. Um, the, the second and last movement I'll mention, again, just briefly, is the Shakya Buddhist Society of Madras, or modern-day Chennai in southern India. So this organization is founded by a radical anti-caste intellectual and activist named Yoti Tas. Tas is born in 1945 into a so-called untouchable caste, He's trained as a native doctor, but he's also part of a minority of kind of untouchable castes whose social and economic livelihoods really benefited from colonialism and that they were, you know, given access for the first time to some degree to public spaces, to employment opportunities, education, and, you know, limited degrees of political representation. Now, Toss did not turn to Buddhism until the 1890s, but, you know, before this, he had used all kinds of different means, journalistic publications, judicial practices to demand Dalit access to education, to public wells, to public offices, and also just to launch these really vitriolic attacks against Hinduism, against the caste system, against child marriage. And when Toss embraces Buddhism, he remains no less hostile towards all things Brahmanical. And he publishes this very popular monthly journal that is really invested in kind of publicizing his very polemical viewpoints on, on Hindu practice and tradition to spread news of global Buddhist developments and to publicize Buddhist literature. 
And as a scholar of Pali and Sanskrit and Tamil, he draws on a, a wide range of well-known and lesser-known sources. But two things are really notable in Tass's view that, you know, in retrospect, we can think about his legacy. And first is that he, he upholds this kind of, you know, standard modernist interpretation of Buddhism, right? He, he argues that it was fundamentally rational, that's humanistic, that's egalitarian, and he blends it with ideas derived from atheist free thought movements and also kind of Tamil folklore and traditions. And the second, you know, and arguably just as important is that he argues that Buddhism was the original religion of the Tamil untouchable caste from which he sprang. So that is, he kind of argues that Pariyars, the kind of his, you know, birth caste group, um, were the original inhabitants of India, and that Buddhism was the subcontinent's pre-Vedic indigenous religion. So this completely flips the kind of Aryan invasion theory on its head. And Tass does this by pushing the origins of Buddhism back several thousand years. And he argues that when Vedic Aryans came to India, they very violently kind of, you know, conquered Buddhist kings, colonized their sacred spaces, and then Brahmanized the history of India to make it appear as if Hinduism, Vedic traditions were the original inhabitants. And, you know, this idea has some antecedents and other anti-caste movements of the period. Um, But this argument that untouchability arises due to the conflict between Buddhism and Brahmanism really becomes the cornerstone of 20th century Dalit Buddhist thought, right? This is most clearly seen in Ambedkar's conversion. Um, But, you know, the idea really captures a wide range of people in the Tamil-speaking populaces. And, you know, in its first 30 years, the Shakya Buddhist society spreads rapidly outside Madras um, in ways that are really traced to the migration patterns of the laboring castes that it served, right? So you branches open up alongside railway workshops, military bases, mining camps, laboring fields, all across Southern India, but also in places like Burma and South Africa and in Ceylon, right? So the, the kind of connection to South Africa, I think is particularly of interesting to think about the role of Buddhism in South Africa during this period. Wow, this is so fascinating. Um, in a nutshell, previous chapter, we talk about Buddhism of, I don't know, from the top 1% view, but now you really talk about the laborers, the 99%, right? The migrating masses. Um, I just want to prime our readers. I recently write an um, article just published a few months ago about Kripashan. Um, Kripashanan, uh, by Sanjoy Chaudhary, a, a scholar working at Thailand um, um, Mahidon University. But I'll put a link in our online posting. So, you know, readers interested, want to know more about the Bangal Buddhist Associations, just go in there. Um, now, let's segue to chapter four, Brahmanizing Buddhism. That moves us to a different phase. That's the early 20th century that zooms into the Brahman 80s appropriation of Buddhism, who now claim that Buddha is a Buddha Dev, a Hindu of the Hindus. Uh, Buddhism was also part of the so-called Aryadhamma in general and a branch of Hinduism now, of course. Uh, but there were also like multiple voices, multiple organizations, many different kind of key figures, diverse voices. So it's, you know, the Aryadhamma thing is just like a... I don't know, an umbrella term help or organize this vast amount of information. But I'm particularly fascinated by this figure called um, J.K. Berla. I'm probably butchering many names now. Uh, Jugal, Kishmo, Kishore, 
Birla is a fame, famous kind of industrialist and philanthropist. He's often called the modern day kind of Anatta Pindika, the greatest um, kind of a householder supporter of the Sangha back in the Buddhist times. But he's the modern day reinvention of that. And then uh, Birla has this slogan that Hinduism and Buddhism are branches of the same tree. And clearly, J.K. Birla was confident enough to bankroll many different Buddhist uh, organizations, including the Nipponzen Myohoji that's uh, in in temple in Bombay. Basically, that's a Japanese branch um, that's um, kind of a pure land Buddhism, chanting Daimoku, trying to spread Mahayana Buddhism in India. And Birla was also, uh, you know, Kind of a very interesting figure. He was definitely troubled by these anti-caste, anti-Brahmanical kind of Buddhist movements. But at the same time, he also supported figure like uh, figures like Rahu um, Sankritiyam, Jagdish Kashyap, Damanand Kosambi, Anand um, Kausaliyam, who were critical of those who cater to the rhetoric of Hindu Tua, the kind of a Hindu nationalist movements. But today, it seems like it's the version of Brahmanized Buddhism that's been written into the textbooks and being learned and remembered by educated Indians. So please tell us more like how this about this fascinating period and how this is a dramatic kind of change of heart and the diverse way happened, how it happens and diverse ways of uh, people appropriating Buddhism for different kinds of nationalist agendas. Yeah, this is really one of the more enduring legacies, I think, of of this period as a whole, right? A moment when Buddhism does become Brahmanized in part and parcel to this wider wider modern project of Hindutva, right? That still governs India under the present day administration under Narendra Modi. Now, although you can see the origins of this ideology kind of beginning at the tail end of the 19th century, and we see some continuity with, you know, pre-modern traditions of like the Vishnu Purana and this idea that, you know, the Buddha is an avatar of Vishnu. Um, there's a, a really significant shift in the way it kind of unfolds in the in this contemporary, you know, colonial context. And I, I spend a lot of time, as you say, focusing on J.K. Birla and the All India Hindu Mahasabha. This is a kind of right-wing Hindu political organization that kind of works hand in hand with Birla. And their activities, are, I think, really capture the wider dynamics, right? So between the 1920s and 1950s, when J.K. Birla is really the most active in this in these Buddhist affairs, he constructs more than a dozen Buddhist temples, um, all of which are really aimed at reformulating India's Buddhist past as part of this Hindu past. Um, so, you know, there's similarities in the way that the Hindu temples that he also is constructing at the same time they look somewhat identical to Buddhist ones, right? With significant, with some subtle differences, but so that they're perceived by the viewer and those who enter the temple complexes as part of this, you know, singular Hindu fold, right? And this the idea that India is a Hindu nation. And, you know, these are major constructions. Um, they're built both at well-known Buddhist pilgrimage centers like Bodh Gaya and Sarnath and Kushinagar. So places where Buddhist pilgrims from across the globe are traveling to, but also in new centers of urban activity. So places like Calcutta and Calicut, and Bombay, and New Delhi. Um, so the kind of major sites where people might you know, be entering via a ship or in later years, an airplane or via train, right? They're kind of major stopovers. Um, J.K. Birla himself, you know, it's important to think about some of the context of his own life. So he's, he's born in 1883 as the eldest of four sons. 
he dies in 1967. So it kind of crisscrosses this entire time period that the book, you know, is to some degree concerned with. He's born in Rajasthan in northwestern India, but he then joins the kind of family business in Calcutta in the 1890s. And his own kind of ventures are initially in trading in cotton before moving into opium speculation. The Birlas are really avid industrialists, and they reap huge profits in these arenas. And by the time that J.K. Birla dies, they're one of the wealthiest families in India. You know, according to Forbes magazine, um, I think they're the eighth wealthiest family uh, family in India today, and in the top 100 globally. Right. So these are people with lots of lots of rupees in their pockets. Right. Um, but they're more than just astute businessmen. They're also devout Hindus who really understand the influential role that Hindu institutions can possess if they're financed properly. So they're, um, they own several newspapers, they finance the construction of several major Hindu universities and colleges, scientific institutions. They also effectively bankroll Mahatma Gandhi's political campaigns, although this comes to create a kind of tension within the family itself. So, you know, Gandhi's vision of Hinduism is arguably much more tolerant and inclusive, a more inclusive vision. Um, and, not all the Birlas agree with this. And J.K. Birla in particular is a keen supporter of a more muscular kind of militant Hinduism. So he sponsors things like wrestling gyms and military schools, RSS, you know, training and Hindu propaganda centers. <clears throat> so when you consider Birla's involvement in these kind of political movements and his you know, very orthodox religious beliefs, it's clear that his championing of Buddhism was also part of a kind of careful sociopolitical strategy to contain Buddhism. You know, that it was born out of a kind of anxiety that Buddhism's anti-caste and anti-Brahmanical characteristics possessed a kind of threat to the Hindu nation, right? The kind of threat that we might see coming from someone like Yoti Tas and later Ambedkar. So throughout the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, um, you have temple entry movements where so-called untouchable communities are agitating to gain entry into Hindu temple complexes. Then you have Mahatma Gandhi and B.R. Ambedkar entering into these major debates, both in India and in London, over the question of untouchability. And this really you know, places untouchability at the center of the national consciousness. It makes Hindu leaders like Birla recognize that under the leadership of someone like Ambedkar, Dalits represent a threat to their hold on political power. And, you know, and the kind of, you know, the icing on the cake of all of this occurs in 1935 when Ambedkar declares that while he was born a Hindu, he will not die a Hindu, right? And this really elevates the question of conversion as a solution to untouchability, right? You know, and at this time, you have Buddhist missionaries, polemicists, activists, monks, you know, traveling around India, arguing that Buddhism is the solution to untouchability, right? And in the midst of this it's creating this anxiety. So Hindu leaders began passing resolutions saying that, you know, Buddhists are as much Hindus as Protestants are Christians, right? Trying to minimize this idea of conversion. And this is, you know, in this period in which Birla builds all of these temple complexes, you know, and if you travel to any of these, you know, these temples, and I've been to probably about eight or nine of them, you'll see in inscriptions on the outside and in the interiors of the walls, which all very explicitly state that, you know, this Arya Dharmi or Arya Dharmis, right? This, you know, this group that includes Hindus and Sikhs and Jains also includes Buddhists. And it includes Buddhist peoples who are from China, Japan, Tibet, Lanka, Indochina, and so on, right? They're, they're all part of this one common fold, this one common religious group. Um, and he is quite confident about this, right? He 
constructs three really beautiful temples for Nichidatsu Fuji, right? So the kind of founder of the Nipponzen and Meohoji group, he constructs a, or supports the construction of a Chinese Buddhist temple in Sarnath. And these are major events. He gets major figures to inaugurate the temples, Mahatma Gandhi, um, Sarvapali Radhakrishnan, who's the future president of India. They're all there to kind of orchestrate the opening of these along with um, elite officials from other Buddhist nations. And all of these efforts really help assert and kind of amplify the claim that India is the homeland of Buddhism and that Buddhism is part of this wider Hindu tradition. But, you know, as you mentioned, there's a complexity to this as well, because many of the monastics that Birla supports also espouse an anti-caste, anti-Brahmanical kind of Buddhism. And, you know, as to why Birla supports them, this remains something of a mystery to me, um, you know, whether it should be read as a sign of you know, his confidence that the Buddhist revival didn't really constitute a major threat or whether it was due to his own private interests, perhaps religious interests or commercial interests um, is, is unclear. Um, you know, I think it's certainly somewhere that, you know, we could lead, we could have more research that might answer those questions. Thank you so much, Douglas. This is, again, very informative. I read your book, but the conversation shows up new, con- um, new insights, like, Birla is um, sponsoring Buddhist um, temples, but the strategy is still one of chiefly one of containing, right? Defining a certain narrative, promoting a certain narrative about Buddhism that might can flatten other voices, undermine other voices. All right, so chapter five is about other voices, right? That you don't see in Birla's kind of a family-supported kind of version of Buddhism. That's the title of Snake and a Mongoose, right? It reveals the other side of modern Buddhist movement that saw Buddhism and Hinduism as arch enemies, as shown in the title, right? Those are the arch enemies, the snake and the mongoose. And of course, the combination of this stream is ultimately Bhimro Ramji Ambedkar, born outcast, we've talked about him, but like he holds two PhDs in economics and one law degree, and of course spoke nine languages fluently, effortlessly. Um, sorry, I just have this thing about, I'm jealous about all polyglots. <laughs> but, you know, Bedeker deployed Buddhism as a political means to combat uh, Brahmanical norms and hegemony, especially untouchability, right, we just mentioned. But he also wants to use Buddhism to build a new post-caste social order based on equality, justice, and fraternity, and to protect Dalits. And all these ideas and concerns and ways of understanding Buddhism have their precedence in the previous chapters. They're not born from a vacuum. And the key precedents um, include ideas of Bahujang Buddhism. Bahujang, as you mentioned, came from the Bali expression, uh, Bahujana Hitaya, Bahujana Sukhaya, for the good of many, for the happiness of many, right? That's a classical kind of Pali text. And then there are also the intro Asian Buddhist network, um, for example, Soldier of Sasana, this Buddhist teaching, Sasana. Um, you know, Soldier of Sasana, there are Buddhists from Sri Lanka, Chinese, Japanese Buddhist pilgrims. Um, and more important, you has the Malabar Buddhist movement that say that um, the outcast, the Ijava, as the original Buddhist and the Lakhna's urban poor who saw themselves as the original Indians who were subjugated by the invader Hindus trying to fight against the Adi Hindu movement that opposed the caste reform. 
You also convincingly show us that Ambedkar draw widely from this earlier anti-colonial, anti-caste Buddhist movement and proclaimed as early as in the 1930s that, um, that's on page 217, the doctor undoubtedly, um, doctor means doctor of the Indian social use, is undoubtedly the, the Buddha. But uh, he said the Buddha only helped in establishing democracy. So this is Ambedkar in 1930s. So well before his public conversion to Buddhism, he already see you know Buddhism in a certain light, right? So please tell us more about these figures of Bahujan Buddhists and how they influenced early thoughts of Ambedkar. Yeah. So I mean, as as you say, right? You know, Ambedkar was certainly not the first to espouse this kind of broader ideology, this kind of anti-caste Buddhist ideology, um, and and he was undoubtedly influenced by some of these other movements, even while he took it in new directions and and certainly was able to mobilize a populace unlike any other leader had ever done in South Asian history. Um, and I've, I've already mentioned this Tamil Buddhist movement that was led by Otitas and how it's something of a precursor to the Ambedkarite movement. Um, you know, it's actually one of Tas's close colleagues, P. Lakshmi Narasu, who's a science professor um, who had a major influence in Ambedkar. And Ambedkar republishes Narasu's book, the Essence of Buddhism, I believe in 1948, if I recall correctly, um, with his own preface saying it's the best book that has appeared on Buddhism so far. So Ambedkar is aware of these other movements, um, even though you know he never is actually able to meet with Narasu, but he later travels to southern India to kind of you know pick up the pieces and co- trying to collect some material sources from Narasu's life. Um, there are other movements and figures as well, right? So Ambedkar studies Pali with a, a noted Buddhist activist who is long engaged in these anti-caste Buddhist movements in the 30s and 40s. And then there are movements in Kerala along India's southwestern Malabar coast where thousands of people from a subordinate caste in a Malalam-speaking community convert to Buddhism uh, kind of in mass throughout the 1920s and 1930s. Um, most of these movements kind of fizzle out over time. And... You know, again, whether Ambedkar knew of the Malabar movement is unclear to me. Um, but regardless, it, it, it tells us that, you know, many different South Asian communities saw Buddhism as a kind of a, a tool of liberation or emancipation for so-called untouchables and lower castes. Now, one movement that Ambedkar did develop close connections with that we have really direct evidence for um, prior to his conversion is in the North Indian city of Lucknow. And somewhat unusually, it's led by a a Brahmin-born Bengali who spent the last four decades of his life living as a Buddhist bhikkhu among the Hindi-speaking urban poor of Lucknow. And this figure's name was Bodhananda. Sometimes he's known as Swami Bodhananda or Bhikkhu Bodhananda. Um, He was an orphan who later became a Vaishnava sadhu, a kind of Hindu holy man before converting to Buddhism and taking full monastic ordination in a ceremony orchestrated by Kripasaran, so this Tritagonian monk who led the Bengal Buddhist Association. So again, we see all these networks flowing that go back decades and decades, which otherwise really you know, dropped from our narrative. Um, and what the sources tell us is that Bodhananda was a, a kind of very well-read intellectual. Um, he was known especially for his kind of powerful and fiery speaking skills. Um, he became a major leader in an anti-caste movement that was otherwise led by Dalit intellectuals and activists. So this is a movement that kind of transcends issues of caste. So it's not just Dalits fighting against caste oppression, but Brahmins, you know, Brahmins who've renounced their Brahmanical identity, joining hands with Dalits to fight against uh, the, you know, the tyranny of caste. 
And it's through this activism, as well as through four major kind of Hindi language works that Bodhananda publishes, that he develops a closer relationship with Ambedkar. And um, just to give you a sense of, you know, the the wider uvar of, of what Bodhananda, you know, would write in, um, he produced lots of pamphlets, but he also produced a Hindi translation of the Dhammapada, a biography of the Buddha based on European, Sanskrit, Pali, and Bengali sources, uh, a very popular manual for conducting Buddhist rituals, and then a, a very provocative historical work of Indian history. Um, but he and, Bodhan, um, he and Ambedkar met several times in the 30s and 40s. Ambedkar even visits his temple in Lucknow looking for Buddhist literature. And I've read at least one source that suggests that when Ambedkar be- began planning his public conversion to Buddhism in 1956, he had hoped Bodhananda would oversee the ceremony. But it, it was not to happen because Bodhananda died before that event uh, took place. So all of these movements really help inform the making of Ambedkar's Buddhism, right? I mean, there are numerous other influences as well, many born out of Ambedkar's political activism in India and educational experiences in the U.S., as well as just his own kind of really vast and voracious appetite for reading all kinds of different fields. Um, but one of the ways that these influences is most evident is in Ambedkar's theory of broken men, um, and this is the idea that Dalits or broken men were originally Buddhists and that untouchability was in fact a consequence of Brahmanical persecution of Buddhists and that by converting to Buddhism, Dalits were actually returning or reverting to their original religion. So it's not really so much a conversion, but a reversion to your innate identity, right? Um, and we see these near identical arguments made in Bodhananda's writings in the 1930s, as well as in those of Yotitas. And in a, even in a somewhat modified form among kind of Malabar Buddhists in southwestern India. And, you know, and of course, all these groups collectively are envisioning Buddhism as this kind of emancipatory project or kind of liberation theology. Or I think I've seen that you've, you've called this a liberation Buddhology, if I, if I recall. I think that's a wonderful way of phrasing it. Um, thank you. When I talk about liberation Buddhology, I was talking about Chinese context. I didn't know what at the time, like, there are so many other liberation pathologies. So um, hints for listeners who are more who have more language skills in South Asian languages, just like work on it. It's fascinating. Uh, but thank you so much. This is again very, very kind of informative. Um, that when I was reading this chapter, I was just like, there are other people tried like mass conversions to Buddhism, seeing Buddhism as liberative. Uh, um, practices or just like that's my liberation pathology but how come i didn't know i thought china was the only one uh then i figured out the japan do that i figured out pretty much every low class uh, you go somewhere they'll find some way someone will find a way into buddhism as a liberation kind of a practice um it's just like so many things we need to work on that we haven't even started looking at them um but Let's, for the interest of time, let's move on to chapter six, when the Buddha met Marx. That shows us yet another very kind of a um, lively, thriving branch of the banyan tree of Buddhism. Because Ambedkar was definitely a social reformer. He was very pro-democracy, but he's by no means a Marxist, at least not Marxist enough compared to the figures studied in chapter six. 
like Tamanan Kosambi, who worked in Harvard and, and bought Buddhism while he was in Harvard. There's also these um, Russian figures. I'm 100% am pushing many, many names. There are Gay Oldenburg, Fyodos Scherbaski. Why do you put so many consonants together anyway? And there's also Rahul Sankritiaya. Uh, which I think, remember you mentioned earlier, but you know here you specifically mentioned that he was somehow influenced by the Yogacara Buddhism. So Dhammakirti, one of the kind of uh, logicians of Yogacara, and marks as compatible, claimed Dhammakirti understood modern empirical science. That's on the Canaries on page two forty seven. I just wonder whether there's a Chinese and Tibetan connections there, because I'm pretty sure somebody in 1920s in Tibet and China said similar things. But anyway, that's just me. And of course, like everyone, the Buddhist Marxist, Marxist Buddhist, everyone is different. And the fault lines here seem to be that, um, do you define Buddhism to be violence or non-violence, right? So, um, and now how does the issue of violence and Buddhism Work. So please share with our listeners uh, who were these kind of Buddhist Marxists or Marxist Buddhists and, and, and you know, why there was so few, like, there are still so few scholarship about them. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there's such a, a diverse array of figures at this time who are uh, Buddhist figures, you know, who are drawn to the writings of Marx and Engels and, and the teachings of socialism and also communism more widely. Um, yeah, and yet I think there's you know, still a tendency not to see these connections because of the really terrible legacies left by communism's encounter with Buddhism in places like Tibet and China, um, or even the, you know, if you look at kind of the pseudo-Marxist rhetoric of Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, um, you know, or the Stalinist persecutions uh, in Mongolia. Um, And yet, you know, prior to this period, and to some degree even during it, there were many efforts, you know, to reconcile Buddhism and socialism, you know, that were born out of, I think, uh, you know, a genuine enthusiasm. You know, sometimes, of course, it was kind of imposed upon populaces by the state, by various communist states. But in other times, there were individuals who very willfully um, took up these causes because they believed that these were two things that could work well together to help solve the kind of social and political problems of the day. Um, you know, I use Kosambi and Sankritayayan as case studies to try to trace these two competing wills and to try to also unravel some of the connections that it transpired globally because they themselves were global travelers. So you can really the, see the way that these ideologies unfolded in places like the United States and in Tibet and in Russia and Tibet um, and India and Ceylon and so forth. Um, I, I know we're taking up a lot of time, so I'll try to compress Kosambi and Sankritayayan together um, because they, they do have similarities, and, but also some key differences. So both were Brahmins, and so were born into Hindu families who became Buddhists, and both were monks for significant periods of time. Both took their monastic ordinations and much of their training in Sri Lanka. And Kosami received his full ordination in Burma, but he was largely trained in Sri Lanka. And neither had any formal education, and in terms of a colonial kind of, you know, so-called modern education. And these were not like the kind of English educated Indian Orientalists of earlier generations. Yet both were prodigies. Um, They're both polyglots. They're truly prolific scholars. So Kosambi wrote more than 30 books and dozens of essays, almost all of them in Marathi, which was his mother tongue or in Gujarati. Sankritayayan wrote more than 150 books, um, the vast majority in Hindi, which is just kind of mind boggling to think about how one would even accomplish that. But he also published books in about five, four or five other languages. Um, 
most of their writings were academic. So they wrote kind of histories, commentaries, translations, um, grammatical primers, um, but they both experimented in other genres, wrote plays. Sankritiyan wrote several novels and short stories. Um, both were nationalists and you know, a kind of deeply committed Indian nationalists. They were both involved in the anti-colonial movement. They were both jailed by the British at various periods of their life, Sankritiyan significantly longer than Kosambi. Um, they both espoused a kind of Buddhist modernism that was typical of the era. So again, seeing Buddhism as scientific, progressive, rational, compatible with modernity. Um, and they were both incessant travelers, almost always on the move. So Kosambi lived in India, Sri Lanka, Burma, Russia, and the United States. Sankritiyan's travels were even more widespread and included almost the entirety of Asia, um, including, you know, four major expeditions into Tibet, which is where I think you might see these connections to the Dharmakirti and Yogacara story that he picked up from a prominent Tibetan Lama whose name I cannot recall right now, but who later um, became one, of, I believe, the vice president of the Chinese Buddhist Association. Um, so we, we could look up his name later, but I just, or maybe it'll come to me um, momentarily. Um, and then finally, they were both shaped really deeply by the teachings of Marx. You know, and I, I think while all of this kind of draws them together in some ways, this, the similarity does stop there. So Kosambi discovered socialism during his first trip to the U.S. while he was working at Harvard. Uh, this was in 1910 to 1912. He took four major trips to Harvard um, to work on the Vasudhi Magga. Um, now, at the time, he had recently given up his monastic robes, but he became convinced that the principles of socialism, kind of collective decision-making, the nationalization of property, were deeply compatible with Buddhist principles. And he began then propagating these ideas via Marathi language journals and also in his books. Um, but he was also a dedicated Gandhian. This is largely due to his commitments to nonviolence. And after he moved to Leningrad in Russia in 1929 to work at the Institute for the Study of Buddhist Culture, um, and then again in 1932, um, he became much more critical of the kind of you know Stalinist communist state. Um, and this is no doubt because it really overlapped with this kind of draconian turn under Stalin and execution of those communists who didn't follow Soviet orthodoxy. Um, in Kosambi's later works, um, he attempted to try to blend various political ideologies, um, including that kind of, of Marxist principles of economic reform with ideas of Buddhist and Jain nonviolence, Gandhian-style protest to kind of put forward a new political theory of how India could resolve many of its problems. Um, now, in contrast to this, Sankritayayan, as a kind of Buddhist thinker, really only began to engage more forcefully with communism during his first travels to Tibet in 1929. And by this time, you know, Sankritayayan had already lived as a Hindu holy man. He'd worked as a Hindu social reformer. He'd been a Congress politician. He'd been jailed by the British. He had written a science fiction novel. <laughs> um, and then he began, you know, he spent almost a decade of his life in search of Sanskrit manuscripts in Tibet. And this is where he came across um, the uh, Pramanavartika uh, Tika, so kind of commentary on Dharma Kirti's works on um, logic. And at that time, he began collaborating with several Mongolian monks and Tibetan monks who informed him of this Soviet instigated movement to restore Buddhism to its quote, kind of original primitive form, you know, that has had no friction with atheism and communal ownership of property. And 
a year later, Sankrityayan translate translates the Communist Manifesto into Hindi. He writes a book called Why Socialism, a kind of, you know, uh, putting forward a path for socialist revolution in India. And this is all the while, while he's living as a monk. And over the course of the next decades, he collaborates more extensively with Soviet Buddhologists who are kind of making similar arguments, as well as with many Indian socialists who are beginning to read Buddhist scriptures from this kind of socialist lens. But, you know, unlike Kasabi, who's appalled at the violence of the Stalinist state, Sankritayayan really turns a blind eye to it. Um, several of his colleagues in Russia are executed. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, Kosambi never, I mean, excuse me, Sankritayayan never makes any criticism of this. Now, there's possibility of, of a personal element here. Sankritayayan marries a Russian academic, a Tibetologist. They have a child. And if he had been critical of the state, he probably would have risked never being able to visit them again. And in fact, that happens towards the end of his life regardless. Um, but in the last decades of his life, his writings take a much more rigorous Marxist tenor. Where Kosambi sees Marxism as kind of secondary to Buddhism, Sankritayayan sees Buddhism as an admirable but ultimately failed social project. He criticizes the Buddha for not eradicating caste, for his reliance on landed elites. Um, but in his fictional writings, so Sankritayayan writes more than 15 novels in the last two decades of his life, he produces a much more romanticized image of the Buddha. So he describes the Sangha as a kind of communism. He calls the Buddha the heart of a heartless world. Um, he describes Buddhist philosophers as kind of the scientists of that era. And, you know, again, this helps create this vision that Buddhism and socialism are somehow compatible with one another. Um, you know, and this really lasts, you know, to this very day within India, where there's a lot of people who subscribe to this kind of vision of Buddhism. Well, thank you, Douglas, again, mind-blowing, such rich information. And Prime readers, if you want work on social political theory inspired by Buddhism, starting with these two figures, this is like 100-something books, 15 novels, and then the other, uh, Kosambi, is like 30-something books. Everyone deserves like multiple monographs on their own. <laughs> um, so... And Buddhism and politics, it's just like there's no never such a thing called pure apolitical Buddhism, right? And then those figures living on the ground shows you how Buddhism and politics has been intertwined, interlocked in different ways. And chapter seven, the Buddha nation tells another interlocking mechanism of Buddhism and politics, but it takes us to Nehru's India and Nehru's Buddhism, or maybe his dream of reviving Ashoka's Mauryan Empire. So here you point to us, to the readers, the salient presence of the Buddha and Buddhism in many uh, Indian public spaces, like there's always somewhere uh, Gautama Hall, Buddha Park, Lambini Land, not to mention the government supported restorations of key Buddhist pilgrimage sites. <clears throat> Instead of the earlier Buddha family, now it's the government supported, right? There's also sponsoring of Buddhist uh, rituals of the Buddha's relics, and also about the uh, uh, relics of Sariputas and Maglana's kind of relics, these covered in Sanchi Pagoda in 1854. And there's also Nauru's um, participation of Rabindranath's the Jin Bhavan in his uh, Rabindranath Tagore's kind of uh, Vishwabharati, his university. And Nauru's use of Buddhism as a kind of soft power. 
So basically, Nehru, you tell us, presented India as here, I quote, the sole heir to a progressive and glorious civilization that was simultaneously unique, therefore national, but also equally uh, transnational and part of the wider heritage of Asia. That's on page 277. But again, Nehru was not the only one who used Buddhist diplomacy. We also see Chinese Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, the Tibetan leader Dalai Lama, and quite a few others, they all try to push their own kind of agenda. So this is the often overlooked Buddhist face of modern India. As a nation state, right, this modern India was quite um, not really secular, not even Hindu Tua. It's just like Buddhism built in. So please tell, tell us more about these fascinating intersections of Buddhism and politics at this, this particular uh, historical juncture. <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, during this whole period, you have an array of Asian leaders that are really jostling for power and precedence on the world stage, right? This is all occurring as the walls of European colonialism are crumbling and a kind of new world order is emerging. But it's still yet to be clear what these relationships are going to look like among various, you know, decolonizing Asian nations. And Buddhism comes to be seen as one of the primary links between Asia, right? In fact, I think one could argue that one of the few things that links Asia together as a geographic entity, as a kind of unified region is Buddhism, right? Buddhism helps create the very idea of Asia, give it a coherence as a kind of cultural or even political region, you know, both in the pre-modern, but to some degree, even the modern world. And in a Cold War world, a kind of pan-Asian unity based on Buddhist principles was really the theme of the day, Um, particularly for those nations that were invested in the non-aligned movement, I think. And I think we see some differences. Um, So nonviolence, religious tolerance are often argued to be uniquely Buddhist, and Asian leaders use these tropes to argue that the teachings of the Buddha are are capable of transcending any differences, cultural or political, that exist within the the Asian Buddhist world. Now, Nehru capitalizes on this sentiment, right, just like other leaders, but he does so in a manner that places additional stress on the Indian origins of Buddhism, on this idea that India is the homeland of Buddhists worldwide that it is India and Indian civilization that gave Asia the so-called gift of Buddhism, right? It's most cherished possession. And by extension, this means that, you know, according to Nehru, India is the civilizational center of modern Asia, right? And so the entirety of Nehru's political career from independence up until his death in 1964 is really invested in developing this kind of Nehruvian style Buddhism, right? This is not to, you know, marginalize other, you know, motivations that Nehru had, but this is certainly a key element that I think has been overlooked. And Nehruvian Buddhism, as I kind of call it or frame it, has two dimensions, right? The first concerns domestic policy, how Buddhism could be used for for nation-building purposes among its own citizenry. And the second concerns foreign policy, how Buddhism can be used to advance, you know, India's geopolitical aspirations abroad. So, you know, what does this actually look like? Um, Nehru invests in major scholarly projects. Um, He produces a documentary on the Buddha that wins an award at the Cannes Film Festival. He orchestrates these major celebrations of India's Buddhist heritage, most famously at the 1956 Buddha Jayanti celebrations, where he invites more than 200 heads of state, royal dignitaries, foreign ambassadors, and Buddhists from across the globe to celebrate what he calls Buddha's homecoming, this 2,500 years of Buddhism. Um, and this is a, a year-long celebration. It's not just a singular event or a weekend exhibition. 
Um, so he's using helicopters and airplanes to kind of shower villages and towns with lotus flowers and government pamphlets that are praising Buddhist nonviolence. He displays ancient Buddhist relics. He orchestrates these meetings between world leaders where there's lots of Buddhist imagery in the background. But it also goes you know, beyond just this 1956 event, right? It permeates down to diplomatic missions where Indian Buddhist monks travel to China, to Burma, to Thailand, and other countries as part of these official government missions to foster goodwill. Relics are sent abroad. Relics are sent to Himalayan, Himalayan borderland regions in India, where there's actually Buddhist communities in the majority. And this is you know, clearly intentioned with to send messages to these communities that the government, Indian government, richly supports their Buddhist cultural identity, right? And this is especially the case in places bordering Tibet, which after, you know, the Chinese invasion of Tibet in the 1950s and the Dalai Lama's exile to India in 1959, um, you know, is the source of continued Indian and Chinese tensions, right? And then this completely unravels after the Sino-Indian War of 1962. Um, So by the time, you know, Nehru dies, this project is being challenged, um, from all sorts of different uh, areas. And observers are really quite skeptical of this idea that Buddhism could contribute to any enduring peace in Asia as it was said to, you know, said to uh, create. So journalists begin comment- commenting on these celebrations and meetings. Um, they point out that you know, this is just a cover for political activity when two monks you know, and two world leaders are meeting to go discuss relics or go to a temple. This is just soft power. So the geopolitical element is really undermined, although it persists to this day, right? So when Narendra Modi visits other countries with Buddhist majorities, he often goes and visits a Buddhist temple or he carries Buddhist relics or a sapling of a bow tree. Or back in 2015, when Xi Jinping first traveled to India as first to visit as head of state, you know, they the Indian government crafted a specially a Buddhist exhibition on Schwanza. Right. So they would kind of greet Xi upon arrival and they would have some sort of connection that, you know, is supposed to exist between India and China. But there are domestic ruptures as well. Um, the most significant of these is really Ambedkar's conversion and the mass conversions that followed and that continue to follow to this day. So Ambedkar had been the minister of law in Nehru's government, but he had resigned and the relationship never really repaired. Um, it was quite hostile. <clears throat> now, Ambedkar and Nehru both share this rationalist interpretation of Buddhism. But Ambedkar's Buddhism has a kind of harder edge to it. It really required a full-fledged revolution based on ethics and morality. I think it was much more steeped in political convictions. And it was also as much about a casteless identity as it was about transcending identity via this realization of emptiness, of shunyata. You know, Nehru's Buddhism didn't really go that far. And I think he propagated it more as a kind of a civic religion, um, not as the basis of a separate identity, and surely not one that would kind of re-emphasize antagonisms between Hindus and Buddhists, which Ambedkar's Buddhism clearly did re-kind of emphasize those antagonisms. Thank you so much, Douglas, for, you know, helping us organize in this rich information and then to see the differences, but also convergences. So finally, we come to the conclusion of your book, Thus Have I Heard. So anyone familiar with Buddhism will will, um, register the kind of a reference to the suttas that Ananda recited so that we got to preserve the Buddha's words. Um, But this chapter reminds us again that scholars should not write 
cookbook histories that reduce complexities, animosities um, into a bunch of labels and titles. To be honest, when I reading your book, I often felt lost in a vast number of names and places I can't keep track. And I managed to remember a few ideas, but probably not much. But I would argue my sense and this sense of disorientation is actually healthy. It's what a book should do, an awesome historical writing should do. Because, it, you know, it keeps me on edge. It compels me to ask what else I do not know, what other kind of um, myths that I didn't really think about that I should think about more. And then where else can I find out more? What else was silenced by our kind of uh, orientalist legacy in academia? So instead of having the final words, your book raises many more questions. I just want to ask what future research you'd like to see more of following the footsteps of your book? Well, I think there's there's so much more to, to do and to say. Um, I, th- I think the book leaves many more questions than it does answers. And my hope is that it opens up several new avenues for research Um you know, I think there's lots of the different side threads. I think we'd all benefit from more kind of in-depth regional studies um, that are really, you know, deeply embedded in certain kind of ling- uh, linguistic families. Um, you know, again, my work really tries to produce a kind of composite whole to provide a structure for this. But now I think some of these regional studies would probably also challenge a lot of what I've said. Um, and I think that would really be productive. Um, you know, there is some really good scholarship I know that's emerging on uh, the Shaki Buddhist Society and kind of Tamil Buddhism, as well as some rigorous studies of Chittagong. Um, so I think that is seems promising to me. Um, I think there's much that could be done in, on this whole narrative of the decline of Buddhism. Um, I, you know, I really think the key thing is language study, right? India is, is just such a babble of tons that, you know, it really requires a lot of time commitment. And, you know, for one reason, I think that I would think that a lot of this new scholarship will come from the pen of South Asian scholars who are, you know, raised in, you know, these different linguistic environments and then can kind of move into these other ventures. Um, And then there's a a lot, as you say, that can be done on these kind of global connections, right? Um, You know, this is a time period in which people are constantly moving and they're looking elsewhere across the globe. They're, you know, they're not just looking nationally in, in this kind of insular sense. And so trying to understand what drives a lot of these transformations and the networks and relationships across Asia as a whole. Thank you so much. It's just like you uncovered for us just like a huge unexplored territory in research that we really should be looking at. But Douglas, we've taken a lot of your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I learned a great deal from you. Just the conversation, like reading the book, I prime my mind in a different way. But when you said it, it just really feels different. But that said, since we only have like an hour, 30 minutes, something, we cannot really cover everything that's touched upon your book. So is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here, but you'd like to highlight and prime our listeners and readers? No, I think I think we've we've covered a lot, and so I don't want to take up anyone else's time, more time. Well, it's a podcast, so if they want, they can always pause us or just listen to part of it. But anyways, before we part of our, our, our race, I just like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question: What keeps you busy? What are you working on now? 
Um, I, I have a lot of material that didn't make it into the book um, for various reasons. So I have a, a few side articles that I've been working on for probably far too long at this point. Um, and then I have kind of two books that I've been working on. One is an edited collection on Buddhism in the Indian Ocean, kind of trans-Asian networks. And then um, that's obviously an edited collection. And the second is a monograph that I'm writing um, alone that's on kind of histories of caste and in, indigeneity in South Asia and the kind of relationship between the two. Wow. Both sounds fascinating. But again, thank you for writing your amazing book and for sharing with us many insights on forgettable metaphors and nuggets of knowledge that you know we all have to process in the long term. And I'm definitely looking forward to read your new books soon. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Mm-hmm.